1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
2: The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. (laughs) As a man, I just, I don't get it.
0: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast conversations that continue to satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always, bringing it to you through your ears every other week. And this one's no different, but it is different in the fact that we have one of the internet's most popular thought leaders and writer, James Clear. That's right, everyone. If you're listening, you've probably heard of him. If you haven't, you will now, and you will continue to do so because James is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, think about this. James has over 1 million blog readers every month. He has 400,000 email subscribers, tens of thousands of social media followers. And here's the thing. We break it down in this episode. How does he do it? But the key is, and I, I agree, I think you all agree. He puts out good work. I mean, if you just go back and listen to the last 300 plus episodes, I think you'll notice most people believe that their focus just needs to be on creating good, valuable work. And James is no different. He writes on everything from behavior change, getting better, habit formation, etc. Now, what we are focusing on in this episode specifically is how did he build his internet empire? Does he feel like he's made it? I mean, We all, or many of us, aspire to the type of work he has, which is on his own terms, providing great value and making money along the way. But I want to know, what's that feel like? He'll talk about marketing versus creation. And then, of course, we get into the reason he's on the show, his brand new book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Now, as many of you know, and I mentioned in this episode, I've been teaching behavior change for close to four years at this point for one of the top behavior change organizations in the world. And so having James on, it was great to have him on. I think his work is fantastic. He hits the nail on the head in a lot of these areas about building systems and how do you change your surroundings? Can't wait to bring this to you, James Clear. And you can find him on jamesclear.com. That's where all of his articles are as well. I've got one ask for you. I mean, look, we're bringing you James Clear. We've heard you've loved some of our most recent guests. So when you hear this, if you like it, just go ahead on Twitter and say, hey, at James Clear, loved hearing you on at smart people pod. So again, his is James, J-A-M-E-S, clear, C-L-E-A-R. So at James Clear, and we are at smart people pod. Just throw that in a tweet. It helps everyone. Now it's on to the show as we bring you James Clear talking about his new book, Atomic Habits, as well as how to build your internet empire. Enjoy. You know, I got to admit, I, this is so bizarre and it might sound weird, but I don't often get like, I don't want to call it starstruck, but a little I feel a little nervous and I am with you for some reason. And it's, and it's because I've been aware of your work for a long time, but you are a force out there in the internet world and in the content creation world are you living your best life?
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I certainly, uh, I, I don't think you have any reason to feel intimidated, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you, uh, about all this stuff more. And I am very fortunate, uh, and, uh, am living a great life with, uh, sharing my work with people and being able to reach and help people through the writing that I do and the content that I'm creating. And so I, uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't want to say I like stumbled into it because it was it was fairly strategic. And, you know, I've spent probably six or seven years working to kind of shape what my daily life looks like now. Mm -hmm. But um, but I definitely am very fortunate to have the opportunities that I have.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I think you put that a really good way. You didn't stumble into it. I mean, having read about what you've done, you know, listening to your interview, we just talked about the interview you did with Noah Kagan you are very strategic. And I think people miss those parts. I wanted to start here though. You have, you know, something like 400,000 email subscribers. I don't even know how many social media followers, books, speaking gigs. So many people are trying to create the business you have. It's like the 21st century dream. Do you feel like you have made it? Oh, absolutely not. No, Um, no. I mean, and I, uh,
1: Well, first of all, I mean, it's very nice of you to say those things. I don't usually think about it that way. Mm. Um, You know, like everybody, I just want my work to matter or to make a little bit of difference each day. So I'm, I'm like way more focused on trying to add value or come up with interesting ideas to push myself mentally. Like if I'm looking back on the stuff that I created three years ago or four years ago. Uh, it doesn't seem very good to me compared to, you know, what I'm producing now. And my hope is three years from now, I'll feel the same way about what I'm putting out today. Um, so I'm like much more focused on, am I growing and improving and am I finding ideas and distributing them in a way that provides value to people? So all the other stuff that we're talking about, like, all these email subscribers and millions of visitors each month and all these opportunities, really that's just a way to distribute useful ideas. Sure. Um, And so I'm just focused on trying to do that. And because I am also like the internet is a little weird in the sense that like, I don't, When I send an email out, it goes out to hundreds of thousands of people, but those people aren't like in my backyard or at my front door or, you know, like I don't see them at all. It's just me in my office. And so there's this interesting thing where like the reach is very broad, but my my daily life is like I'll walk down to the coffee shop and get a hot chocolate and not really think about, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't really uh, it's not like there's there are stadiums of people like looking at me or whatever. And personally, I love that because I'm not really interested in that from, uh, like from my personal brand or whatever we want to call it. Like, I'm not, I'm not really interested in having all these people like looking at me, Mm -hmm. but what I do want is for the ideas to be famous, um, for the ideas to reach a lot of people. And so, um, email lists and the internet and, uh, social media just provide opportunities for me to distribute those ideas to more people than I could ever reach, uh, face to face and, um, that's the opportunity that excites me. And that's what gets me to, to keep coming back is that I can remember early on, I would get like maybe before I really had a large audience, I would get like maybe one email a week from someone who said, Hey, I really like that article or this was really helpful for me for the following reasons. And that email would be enough to get me to come back for the next week. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really doing it for the, um, I'm really doing it for that, for like the feedback and the the value creation and not for the audience size.
2: I totally resonate. I mean, our following is is much smaller than yours. But this idea one time somebody said, you know, every time you think your words don't matter, I want you to imagine that the amount of people listening to your show fill a sports stadium like an NBA, maybe it's an NBA Mm -hmm. arena or something like that. That thought does at least provide, again, not for a necessarily a self-worth, but almost a responsibility and a motivation to to put out good work. I can imagine you feel the same. Well, I mean, think about I, I had someone
1: tell me this the other day. We were talking about podcasting and reaching people. And if you have a podcast that gets like 500 downloads a month, that that's a pretty small podcast, right. relatively speaking, for numbers and reach. But imagine if you walked into a room and you had 500 people looking at you to like give a speech or a talk. I mean, that most people would be like, I could talk to an audience of 500. That sounds like huge. You know, in some cases it would feel very intimidating. Right. Um, and we don't think about the numbers that way because when we just see the number, we kind of think like, Oh, you know, I, I don't know. It's like different when uh, there are people looking at you face to face. But my point is, uh, even if your audience is small, you're still reaching a meaningful number of people. And, um, that's a, that's a responsibility, I think, or a, um, an opportunity or a privilege to be able to do that. And, uh, for me, I, the or- original question you asked a few minutes ago is, do I feel like I made it? And, um, I feel very fortunate to be able to do the work that I'm doing. Um, you know, my first job was I spent all summer waxing and stripping tile. Uh, and then I was like painting the rafters in this old building and stuff. And so like I, you know, that, that was how I got started with work. So to be able to do the work that I'm doing now, um, feels like an amazing opportunity to me. Right. Um, But I don't feel like I've made it because I have this now I have this responsibility to put out great work and to try to hold myself to a higher standard each time.
2: Well, and one of the things I've realized over 300 plus episodes is the people who are successful, the people who I'm talking to in whatever industry it might be, they never feel like they've made it. But that is what makes you successful in the industry. And it's that drive that actually gets you there and keeps you there.
1: Well, I mean, if you went to LeBron and say, do you feel like you've made it? (laughs) It's almost certain that he would say no, even though clearly he's one of, if not the best basketball player of all time. So like he's made it as much as anybody could possibly make it. And yet you can't show up that way Mm -hmm. and, and act that way each day because there's no way to maintain your edge. So. I think that that's true just for any uh, any form of work. It does raise a, a challenge though, uh, which I've written about and thought about a little bit, which is, do you have to be dissatisfied to be driven? Um, you know, Does it require you to feel like I haven't made it, I'm not there yet, I wanna change my state, I wanna reach to, for the next level, I wanna maintain my ambition? Um, do you have to be that way? Uh, do you have to have some level of dissatisfaction with your current state? in order to continue to drive. And, um, I I hate to say yes, but I kind of like lean that way a little bit. Mm -hmm. But then the downside of that is, well, what are, are you not allowing yourself to be happy or to enjoy the moment? Um, and it's kind of like this being at peace and being fully happy and being, um, content with what you've achieved and celebrating that and then being dissatisfied and feeling driven to rise to the next level. Um, they seem to be competing things. And the only way that I've gotten around that, the only solution I've been able to generate is to think of the metaphor of like a seed that is planted into the ground. And so you you plant the seed and then it grows into a little sapling and then it becomes a young tree. And then, you know, eventually over years, it grows into this fully fledged, mature, uh, massive thing. And at no point during that process does did you criticize the tree for what it was did you say oh you're a seed but you should be a sapling already or you're a sapling but why aren't you a full-grown tree yet um at no point where it was the seed so to speak or the tree dissatisfied with with its current state it simply was it was just present however it also never stopped growing because that's just what a tree does and so i like to try to remind myself of that every now and then that like you can be happy and present with whatever your current state is. You're perfect just where you are right now, just being present, but you continue to grow because that's just what you do. That's what humans are wired for. That's what you're wired for. So it doesn't require you to be dissatisfied, but in a sense, growth and optimization and improvement are just a natural extension of what you were built to do. Um, And in my better moments, I think about it that way. And then in my worst moments, I think about it as I need to be dissatisfied with my current state to push myself.
2: Yeah. I love that line of thinking. I came to a similar kind of conundrum a while ago. And the quote that I just eventually boiled it down to was your comfort zone is not that comfortable. And what it meant for me is that I feel my best when I'm striving for more, when I'm uncomfortable, I'm comfortable in discomfort. So anytime I get in a career or a project where things are smooth and it's just working, that is when I'm actually least satisfied. So I think if you can feel happy with the dissatisfaction of the, current state maybe that works
1: well so there's a section in atomic habits where i write about this it's called the goldilocks rule and the basic idea is that humans experience peak levels of motivation when they're working on challenges of just manageable difficulty Mm. so not too hard not too easy just right and that's the the kind of goldilocks principle and The metaphor that I use, the example I use is imagine you're playing tennis. If you play against a professional tennis player, it's going to get boring pretty quickly because you're going to lose every point. Um, If you play against like a three-year-old, it might be cute for a second, but if you're trying to play a serious match, it's going to get boring pretty quickly because you'll win every point. But if you play against someone who's like your equal, you win a few points, they win a few points, you have a chance to win, but only if you really try. That can be incredibly motivating. and that's actually where these experiences of like peak flow experiences or full engagement usually occur kind of on that like razor's edge of your ability. And scientists have been able to quantify this a little bit. It seems that it's usually about 4% beyond your current ability is where you feel that kind of ideal level of challenge.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, Now in daily life, it's really hard to quantify that, you know, like how do I actually, how do I know that I'm meditating 4% harder today? Right. Or like that I'm, uh writing four percent beyond my current ability or something but as a as a rule of thumb or as a guiding principle i think the idea is sound which is as you just mentioned when things become routine when things become expected they get boring and they're no longer novel and so it's easy to not feel engaged when things are challenging when they're uncomfortable a little bit when they're just stretching right on the perimeter of your ability or outside of your comfort zone Then they're interesting because you have a chance to learn something new or to achieve something better. But only if you try and you stay focused and engaged. Now, if it's too difficult, then it gets boring again because you're just losing every time. Um, And so what you need to do is to operate in this kind of like nice region where you're getting enough winning to stay motivated. You know, you like are still succeeding about half the time or maybe a little more. But you're still losing or you're still not quite getting it um, a chunk of the time, which keeps you focused so that you're like, oh, I need to try a little harder. Um, And it's really important to have both because if you don't have those wins, then you just start to give up. But if you don't have the challenge, then you just start to get bored.
2: I love that. And as I go to, I got my softball championship tonight. I'm thinking they're just better than us. Maybe we have a chance.
1: That's probably the most engaging, right? Because now you have the chance to be the underdog who upsets them. Oh, Uh, yeah. And so if you do... This is why the most dangerous thing in a lot of sports games is when the underdog starts to hang around longer. Mm. You know, you get to the third or fourth quarter and it's still a tight game. Now suddenly, you know, the team who was favored starts to tighten up a little bit and the underdog starts to really believe. It's like, you know, we only got five minutes left in this thing and we're still in it. Yeah. Um, And that can be an incredibly motivating feeling.
2: That's a good point. Well, you know, you just alluded to a, a, that was just a snippet of what's in your new book, Atomic Habits. And I want to get into that because you've spent so much time writing on these topics of behavior change. And, and it's you, you do a great job. That's why so many people read your articles. But another thing that you have a really unique perspective on is this idea of growing an audience. And I knew I wanted to talk about it, but after the first 10 minutes or so, I realized I wanted to take this approach. You very clearly and passionately have this urge and this want and this drive to create things of value, but you've done it through both creating good information and also marketing. And for me, it's a it's a block. And I know for a lot of people we hear from, it's a block that, look, why can't I just create this marketing thing feels dirty, feels slimy, feels like I've got to learn how to write to manipulate or whatever it is. How do you separate creation, which is pure and valuable to you and to the people How do you separate that and and also work on the marketing piece, which is just a necessary vehicle to get that out into the world?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, they're not that separated. And what I mean is that with great content, uh, every marketing strategy is easier. So, for example, I mean, this is this is probably the thing that makes most of the difference with growing a large audience. But it's also the like least sexy answer and the one that people are most bored by as an answer. (laughs) But um, For the first three years that I published articles on jamesclear.com, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday and I would try my best every time. Uh, usually my standard article takes me between 10 and 20 hours. Um, sometimes like the fastest I've ever finished an article is probably like eight hours. Uh, the longest is like 40 or 50. Mm -hmm. Um, but most of the time it's probably about 15 or 20, something in that, in that range. Well, I wrote two articles a week, 15, 20 hours a piece. There's your 40 hour work week. Um, and that was, you know, that was basically all I was focused on, but I knew that if I tried my best every time, then I get to the end of the month and I would have two or three that were, that were decent, that were good. Now I didn't know which two or three it would be because sometimes, especially as a creator, you're like a terrible judge of your own work (laughs) and you don't really know, you know, what, like one of the most popular articles I wrote, I was finishing in the passenger seat of a car going through West Virginia. And I only did it because I had to get something out that day. Um, But and, you know, then there's other ones where I feel really great about it and I put it out there and it's just, you know, silence. So um, my point is that you need to show up enough ideas. uh, You need to show up enough times to get the average ideas out of the way for there to be like this kind of like little spark of genius that shows up every now and then. And uh, that is true for so many areas of life. I mean, imagine like going to the gym if you said, well, I'm only going to work out on days when I feel like I can hit a PR or I can put up like a, you know, a new personal best or whatever. Well, it would never work because you would only go like once a month when you feel fresh. And of course that's not actually going to allow you to put up a personal best because you're not training enough. And writing is kind of like that too. Like you can't, you can't just say, Oh, I'll just write when I feel inspired and then hope to have something magical happen. Like you need to show up each day and then every now and then you'll have something hit. So that's the thing that makes like 98% of the difference. Um, And I did that for three years. And so I had this body of, you know, let's call it a couple dozen articles that were just really good and did really well uh, because I had shown up hundreds of times. And once you have those, then you're able to do all this marketing stuff like those articles because they are well received. They get shared on social media more. And because they went over well with my audience, I could reach out to partners like, entrepreneur or time or the new york times or places like that and get them to link to it or syndicate it on their site and so on um and so it was really doing the work that made all that stuff easier um so in that sense marketing and content creation are directly tied to each other uh if i think about it separately i do feel like especially early on it's really crucial to um To put basically for every hour that you spend creating, spend an hour, uh, marketing, so to speak. Now for me, that maybe looks different than what I I don't really know, honestly, what most people consider marketing. I don't, I think I'm very bad at sales. So when I think of marketing, I just think about sharing free stuff, like Mm -hmm. a free article or a podcast or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think about like telling somebody about something of value that I created and, Uh, A lot of the time for businesses, people will talk about the importance of product market fit. So like if you create a software uh, product, you have the product, but you need to find the right fit with a particular market. So you may need to like reframe how the product is promoted. Like at first you said it was for managers, but then you find out, oh, actually this product needs to be framed for uh, HR executives. And that was the framing that allowed you to find this product market fit. And usually when people talk about that, about finding the right fit for your product or your content, they think about changing the product itself. Like I just described, it was for managers. Now it's for HR execs. But I think actually an overlooked portion of product market fit. And perhaps the key thing that most people are missing is distribution, not changing the product, but getting in front of more eyeballs. Right. And the way that I think about it is, I write a lot about habits and improvement and behavior change. And there are many people out there who are interested in habits. I don't happen to know where they are, but if I can get distributed widely enough, then some of them will kind of like self-select and product market fit will like find itself just by being in front of enough people. So I'm focused on pretty heavily on building partnerships that can get a lot of exposure. So for example... Atomic Habits, if you go into six, there are 600 different Barnes and Noble stores throughout the country right now that have Atomic Habits on their table. And that is a great example of a distribution deal that allows me to have like a lot of visibility and reach a lot of eyeballs, there are going to be some people who walk into those stores that are interested in habits, and uh, hopefully they'll see the book and check it out a little bit and decide that it's useful and grab a copy. And that's happening not because I changed the product, but because we changed the distribution. Um, And you can do the same thing online. And so the simple strategy that I would encourage people to think about is, where are places that have a lot of eyeballs right now? So, you know, big websites like business insider, the New York times, something like that, big podcasts, uh, YouTube channels, um, and so on. And then can you figure out a way to provide value to the people who run those outlets? Right. So like early on, um, after I finished the book, I reached out to a bunch of podcasters and I said something like, I see that you've had uh, a variety of people on your show who've covered like, you know, maybe these three episodes that are similar to what I write about. Uh, I just finished this book here, like two or three things I think I could provide that would be unique to your show and kind of build upon this theme that you already kind of have going in the, in the show. And so I'm just trying to show like you've done stuff kind of like this before. Here's how I can provide value and add to that, uh, and maybe bring something unique as well. And, um, that works really well because you basically are making their life easy. You know, you're like bringing something useful to them. Uh, and it helps you because you're getting in front of those eyeballs. And so, from a like really high level, that's kind of the strategy,
2: yeah. I like that focus on distribution. I mean, it's really hitting home because we are atrocious at it. and i'm I'm kind of trying to siphon some of your your brain power on this as we go. But I think a lot of the reason people don't us included is, honestly, it's a feeling of either inadequacy or fear of rejection. Or is my stuff good enough? You know, if I reach out to whoever, New York Times, and they say, no, does that mean that I just, I don't meet that quality? You had to have felt that way, especially in the beginning. So what did you do to overcome it? Do you still deal with that kind of fear of rejection now? Oh, hundred percent. I mean,
1: I think all creators deal with this a little bit, uh, to some degree, at least, you know, like very early on, I would, it's, it's interesting to hear you describe some of that because I've felt many of those things myself, but now that I'm like kind of on the other side of it, or I can look back on yeah. times when I felt that way. And then I did something to kind of get over it. Um, you realize that that like everything you just described is all just in your head. (laughs) There's no, it doesn't actually have anything to do with the work. It's just your particular interpretation of the work. Um, you know, like if you were to pitch the New York times and they came back and said, no, we're not uh, interested in running that. Well, first of all, like in many cases, no is not like a hard, no, never. Uh, this is terrible. I don't want to see it again. In most cases, it's just not right now is what no means. Um, and many of the people you're going to be reaching out to for this, whether they run an outlet or a journalist or a podcast or whatever, when they say no, usually they just mean not right now. Um, they're very busy and they have other stuff going on and this is, uh, it, it becomes increasingly true as you climb the ladder and start to ask busier and busier, more important, so to speak, people, um, they their schedules are crazy. And so it really a lot of the time, whether you get a yes or not, just comes down to timing um, and not whether it's particularly valuable. Mm. But uh, so anyway, my point is the my point is that the problem is not that the New York Times said no. The problem is that you interpreted that as being like, I should give up. I'm not built for this. Uh, you know, like I knew my work wasn't that great, whatever. It's all this. Um, it's all that how you're you're interpreting the experience.
0: Yeah. So.
1: Uh, and I think everybody deals with that. Um, so I was dealing with that very early on as a writer where I felt like I don't have like a PhD in human behavior or in behavioral sciences or something like, like who am I to write about habits basically? Right. Is yes. what I thought about early on and I had a friend tell me, um, the way that you become an expert is by writing about it every week. And I like really internalized that idea. And so I just focused on putting in my reps and writing two articles a week. And then I turned around three years later and it's like, hmm, you know, actually there aren't that many people who have written hundreds of articles on how habits work and how behavior can be improved and shaped and so on. And I'm now one of those people who has. So I guess, I guess I am an expert on it, even though, you know, I didn't really feel that way or I didn't, um, have some magical like switch that flipped or some status signal that was bestowed upon me like a badge or a PhD or something like nobody came down from on high and said, you are now a habit expert. Right. Um, but I was able to develop that by showing up and putting your reps in. And, um, so I think that's the first thing is put your reps in, do the reading, do the work, uh, and you'll develop expertise, whether a third party has signified that you are an expert or not. And secondly, um, you realize the more no's that you get, how little they matter. Uh, I remember I used to think if my business could just get featured in the New York times, then I'd be set. I thought like, Oh, I, if they cover yes. me, then everybody will know about it and it would kind of take off from there. And so for years I was hoping that would happen and trying to find ways in, it wasn't working. I just kept my head down and kept working. Um, and then finally, uh, earlier this year, actually, I got featured in there for the first time. And then they did it again, like a month later, and then again, like a month after that. So now it's been, you know, three or four different times I've been in there. And what's interesting is it's a nice little spike for like a week and then things go back to normal. And so as you start to gain more experience and get a little bit of perspective on what it's like to go through this roller coaster ride of entrepreneurship, you begin to realize that there is no single instance that will make or break you. Um, and no single no will wreck you or ruin your business and no single yes will make you a success for the rest of time. And so, um, you really need to just stay focused on continuing to put the reps in and realize that there are going to be a very wide number of no's, uh, and a a few occasional yeses that creep into anyone's personal story. And, um, once you start to view it that way, I think it becomes not easy, but maybe a little bit easier to handle, uh, those no's
2: all such a great point. When you talk about just put the reps in, I was just talking to a friend about, you know, the book, 10% Happier. I think it's Dan Dan Harris. Yeah. My friend is really into the mental health space. And she said, you know, what Dan did is essentially something that really impacted him. And he learned this idea of meditation. He was skeptical. He went and talked to the experts and wrote about it and talked about it and wrote about it. And now he's the expert. And it's like, yeah, because he's done the work he's done. He's aggregated, he's learned, he's practiced. And that's essentially kind of exactly what you're talking about and highlighting, you know, in a weird way, it's kind of, it it kind of comes back to this concept
1: of identity that I talk about a fair amount. Mm -hmm. Like I, I cover this in chapter two of the book that your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So like every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time you, uh, you know, read a page, you embody the identity of someone who is a reader or a learner. Every time you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And so when we're talking about things like this, like Dan Harris put in the effort and interviewed the people and wrote the book and now he's the expert. It, it's kind of how it always works. You know, like if you go and uh, kick a soccer ball around for an hour, you don't like magically flip the switch in your head and think, oh, I'm a soccer player now. Right. But if you show up and like go to a soccer practice every day for, you know, six months or whatever, then you turn around at some point and you cross this invisible threshold and you're like, oh, I guess I'm a soccer player. And it works like that for any area of life. Like if you want to foster an identity, if you want to develop a new sense of self image, your habits are how you kind of like lead the way with that. It's by putting the reps in that you come to believe it about yourself Mm -hmm. or as my high school basketball coach told me one time, um, confidence is just displayed ability. And so the more that you display your ability to meditate each morning or to write about a particular topic, uh, the more confident you become in yourself that you are that kind of person. So I guess my ultimate point here is that your habits are really the best lever that you have for developing a new sense of identity or sense of self. And so if you feel unconfident or you feel like you're not the expert in a particular area, um, then what you really need to do is not to worry about your feelings or about how it feels internally, but to focus on putting in your reps and building those habits.
2: Well, the last thing I want to touch on before really digging into habits, because I mean, I know if I was listening to this interview, where my mind would be right now is, okay, James, I get it. But- how? How do you write for three years and like support your life? The number one thing I hear, and I hear this in the workshops I teach, I hear this from people on email, I hear, is, look, I know what I want to do, but I don't know when to do it. And then how am I going to make a living while no one's reading? What is it? Like, how did you survive and what was your relationship with money during those times when, look, to be honest, we, we gotta make a living. We gotta survive. Well, so
1: first of all, I think there are two questions here. The first one is like, when do I do it? Like, how do I find the time? And the second one is, uh, how do I manage the money situation? So let me just take them uh, one by one. Yeah. So for the time piece, um, I think it's important to set some kind of, like you need to carve out space for your goals to live in your life. And what I mean by that is, a lot of the time people wake up and they wonder things like, Oh, I hope I feel motivated to work out today. Or I wonder if I'll feel, you know, inspired to write today. And, uh, instead it's much more useful. And there are a ton of scientific studies on this, that people who write down specifically when and where they will implement a behavior are more likely to fall through. It sounds really basic, but it's like, you know, if, um, if you write down literally like type it out or write it down, I'm going to go to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5 p.m. at this gym, you know, and do these exercises or whatever. The more specific and clear the plan is, the more likely you are to follow through. And so the the lesson here is that many people think they lack motivation when what they really lack is clarity. They're just waiting to figure out like when they'll feel motivated to do something. So. You need to have a time and a space for that. And of course the particular time and space will differ based on your life and circumstances and what your job looks like. And if you have kids and all that type of stuff. Um, but so carve out a space for that to, to happen. The second thing is I like to think about life as a series of seasons. And so uh, you know, I'm, I'm very ambitious. I want to do a lot of things. And so because I want to do all this stuff, it's really hard for me to say no to stuff, but then that means it's very easy for me to say yes to too many things. And then I get spread too thin. And if you're spread too thin, you can't do anything well enough to stand out. And so I really need to be careful about cutting out things that are like interesting or good uses of time so that I can make space for the things that are great uses of time. And the best mental framework that's helped me do that is thinking about life as a series of seasons. And so the question I'm always asking myself is what season am I in right now? And, uh, if I'm being honest, the season that I'm in right now is very career focused. I don't have kids yet. So like I'm not spending that much time on family related stuff. It's also uh, personally health focused. So if it's not related to career or working out, it's not a huge portion of my day. And that means that other stuff like uh, family and friends don't get as much time. And it also means that, uh, areas like that are interesting to me. Like I would love to learn a musical instrument. For example, I don't know anything about music. I can't read music. Um, I think it'd be a really cool skill to develop, but it's not the right season for that because every hour that I spend on music takes away from, um, the hour that I could be working on the next book or on some particular idea or thing with my business or at the gym or whatever. And the point that I'm getting at here is people say things like, Oh, you know, like I don't know when to fit this in or where's the time. And the truth is we all face trade-offs. trade-offs, time trade-offs are inherent in life. They're literally built in to the fact that you only have 24 hours in a day. So you have to decide it. What season am I in? Am I in a season where watching an hour of Netflix a night or two hours of Netflix a night is more important to me than working on uh, an article or a, you know, a side business or something. And the honest answer is for many people that the answer to that is yes. Um, it's more important to them to watch Netflix for an hour than it is to work on a particular side business or uh, to give a more compelling trade off. It's more important to spend an hour with their kids after working a full day uh, than it is to work on a side business. And that's totally fine. Like there are no right or wrong answers here. It's just that you need to be honest about what the trade the trade offs are in your life. So that you can make those decisions with clear eyes rather than being like, oh, I just don't know how people find the time. The answer is the time always comes from somewhere. And so you have to be very clear about when and where it's going to happen. So that's the time component. Then there's the money component. And every entrepreneur that I know of has some version of this story where. They are they figured out a way to make money while the other thing was getting started or, you know, they had saved up money to live off of for a few months while they had to get the, the new business up and running. Um, I was no different. I really wasn't making enough money until about 18 months in uh, to pay for my bills and like be full time. And so for those first 18 months, I lived off some money that I had saved up for the first like six months. And then for the next 12, I took on freelance clients for uh, like web design or things like that. Uh, and I would do basically the bare minimum that I had to do to make enough money. Um, and then spend all the rest of the time working on the business. And so I, you know, did that and then slowly tried to ramp down the freelance clients and ramp up the money from the business. And eventually, you know, a couple of years in everything had been switched over and I was full time just on the business and didn't have to do any of the extra stuff. Um, And that was how my version of that story went, but everybody has their own version. And, um, at some point you, you just have to find the time for it. Uh, and you have to figure out how to either make do with less, you know, like my first year I technically lived below the poverty line. Now I wasn't, uh, I would never say that I actually lived in poverty or anything. I was, I was fine and fortunate enough to, you know, I knew my parents would take care of me if I had to go live with them or something like that. Right. Um, but my point is that it's not sexy early on. And uh, it was <laughs> in many ways, it was as easy as it could have been for me because I didn't have kids or a family that were relying on me. Um, and it was still really hard. And so I, I have a lot of respect for anybody who tries to go that route uh, and deal with those trade-offs because it's just it's going to be tough no matter when you do it.
2: You know, I'm so glad you said that, because we had a guest on episode 240. This this guy, his name's Patrick McGinnis, and he wrote a book called The 10% Entrepreneur. And the the subtitle is Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. And that was something that resonated essentially what you're saying, right? The side hustle, side gig, whatever you want to call it. But too many people I think these days are indoctrinated with this like burn the boats mentality. It's like the Gary Vaynerchuk kind of thing of if you're not doing it full bore, then, you, you know, you don't believe it. And I just don't find that realistic or necessary in the world when you can do multiple things at once. So to hear it from someone such as yourself and not only it worked for you, but all the people and you are in this kind of this this cadre of of great entrepreneurs, they start while making money elsewhere as well. I think that opens up options for a lot of our listeners.
1: Yeah. I, you know, there's no one way to be an entrepreneur, right? So there, there are many ways to make that story work. Um, that just happens to be how I did it. Um, there is a value to, uh, being full, uh, like all in on one idea and not living in both worlds. Like while I was taking those freelance clients to make a little bit of money, I was never really seriously considering, oh, maybe I'll be a freelance, you know, web designer or freelancer or something. Like I, I knew that I was 100 percent in on the business idea and I was just doing this stuff to make enough money to get by. Um, whereas there were moments when especially early on, you know, your parents just want you to be safe. And so my parents kept suggesting, like, well, you know, maybe you should apply for like a regular job rather than do this thing or, you know, and you could like do this on the side or whatever. And I just knew that if I did that, then I would be kind of like mentally giving up on the idea. And so there was value in like forcing myself to say, okay, either you're going to figure this out or, um, you know, like there was, there was one particular month where my girlfriend, now my wife, uh, transferred $200 into my account because I didn't have enough money to pay for rent, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. It was like three weeks away. And, uh, or I wouldn't have had enough money for food. So I had to choose, like, was I going to buy groceries or was I going to pay rent? And, uh, I was like, I think I'll be fine. I was just, you know, like trying to vent to her about it or talk about it. And she was like, just take the money. And if you need it, you can, you know, if you need it, it'll be there. But, uh, you like, you can give it back to me if you don't need it. And I remember having a moment that night or that week and thinking like, either I'm going to figure this out. Or, you know, like th- this is basically the moment, right? Like th- I need to figure it out this month or it's not going to happen. And I will say there was something very valuable about having your back up against the wall. Like yeah, that. yeah. And not, um, not all, it doesn't always work out. Uh, and not everybody responds in a favorable way when they're put in a situation like that. Um, but for whatever reason it was able to like pull it out of me and I was able to make it happen. And, um, so there is some value to being all in in a mental sense uh, like that. But I there's certainly no <laughs> it, it's totally fine to have savings or to um have some kind of on ramp or to make money on the side as you're building this up. Like it's I, I don't it's completely normal. And anybody who tells you there's like one way to do it is just uh either selling something or lying about the
2: process. <laughs> I love that. Well. James, I really want to get into this idea of habits, and we've been discussing them throughout, but your new book is Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. I want to start with this. Why atomic habits?
1: Yeah, good question. So I chose the phrase atomic habits for uh, three reasons. So the word atomic can have multiple meanings. The first meaning is like small or tiny, like an atom. And that is like kind of a core part of my philosophy. Habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms built into molecules, molecules built into compounds and so on. And I think in a sense, we could say habits are kind of like the atoms of our lives. They're like these little fundamental units or little routines and patterns that when you layer them together, they end up making the larger system of your daily routine or your, your overall habits and lifestyle. And then the, the third meaning of the word atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And I think that if you combine all three of those meanings, you understand like the narrative arc of the book, which is if you make changes that are small and easy to do and you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system, then you can end up with really powerful or uh, remarkable results. And the, the book kind of outlines a framework for actually doing that and uh, and achieving these outcomes by using small habits.
2: Great. Well, and I want to learn that framework. One question I have, and this is just in my experience, I've seen that before we talk about changing habits, I find one of the reasons people don't even start is because of fear of defining what they want in the first place. Where have you seen this idea of the vision and actually coming up with it? uh, Where do you find that falling in the realm of habit creation? Yeah. Well, I think, um,
1: it's important to know what direction you want to move in. So this is what I would say, like goals can be useful for, uh, I have a whole section in the book on why systems are more important than goals. And I think what goals are like somewhat overrated or overvalued, but that doesn't mean that goals are useless. And what I think they're useful for is developing clarity for developing a sense of direction for having that clear vision about what direction you want to move in. But once you know that, once you have a little bit of clarity about what area you are moving in, um, it's more useful typically to kind of put the goal on the shelf, so to speak, and focus almost exclusively on the system. And the reason I say that is that we live in this very results-oriented society where uh, we're always hearing stories about results and talking about results. Part of this is just a consequence of what the news cycle is like, you know, like nothing is a... Uh, nothing is a news story until there's some kind of result or outcome. Like, uh, you're never going to see a story that says man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. <laughs> it's only going to be like a story, yeah. like, you know, six months later when it's like man loses 50 pounds. Right. Um, and so my point here is that the process is often hidden from view. The system that led to the result is hidden and invisible. Whereas the outcomes are like visible and praised. And, uh, so because of that, because we're seeing these news stories about results all the time, and this is just magnified by social media, right? Where like, you just see people's highlights and outcomes and events all the time. Um, I think we tend to overvalue that and think, oh, the results are the thing that we need, but the lesson, uh, and one of the key ideas or philosophies in atomic habits is that your results are not the thing that needs to change. It's in fact, the system or the habits behind the results that you need to adjust. So, you know, imagine if you have like a messy room or your garage is, you know, cluttered or whatever, and you get motivated to clean your room or clean the garage and you spend three or four hours doing that on, a, you know, an afternoon or whatever. And at the end of all that work and motivation, you end up with a clean room. And so you think that what you wanted was that result. But if you don't change the sloppy, messy, pack rat habits that led to a messy room in the first place, then you turn around like 3 weeks later and you've got a dirty room again. And so the the key idea there is it's kind of like treating a symptom without treating the cause. And so the results are the, just the symptom. The the habits are the cause. And in many ways your outcomes in life are just a lagging measure of your habits. You know, like your net worth is a lagging measure of your financial habits mm-hmm. or your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits or Your amount of knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning and reading habits. And so in a sense, you kind of naturally get what you repeat. The outcomes just uh, are an extension of the behaviors that precede them.
2: You know, I I love that take on the lag measures. We actually One of the things we talk about at Franklin Covey, and it comes from this book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, and it's exactly what you're talking about. We focus on lag measures in business, right? How much money did we make? What's our quarterly earnings? How many sales do we close? But if you want to change your business, change your life, this is what you're talking about. Focus on the lead measures, which are the influenceable items. And what you have discussed and done so brilliantly, it says not just focus on them, but create a system by which you change them automatically or you change them habitually. So tell us about how do we change our system? How do we identify are weak links in the system and then change them to, to give us better outcomes.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, this is the, the core thing that atomic, one of the core purposes of the book of, uh, one of the core purposes of atomic habits is to try to give you a framework that you can use for that. And so the, the best structure that I've been able to come up with is what I call the four laws of behavior change. And you can sort of think of these four laws as like individual levers that you can pull. To make building good habits easier or to make it more likely that you'll break a bad habit and when the levers are in the right positions habits are like easy and effortless and natural and you just kind of fall into them and when the habit uh, when the levers are in the wrong positions habits are really challenging and difficult because you're kind of like going against the grain of human nature so the the four laws for building a good habit are make it obvious make it attractive make it easy and make it satisfying and they're linked to these kind of four stages that all habits go through. And, uh, and I go into the full detail on that in the book. I'll just keep it high level for right now. But the point is that if the cues or the triggers that prompt your good habits are obvious, if they're visible, then you're more likely to f- to remember to do them. If the situation or circumstance surrounding your habits is attractive, if the, in a, a habit is an attractive opportunity, then you're more likely to do it you will more likely to feel motivated or crave to do it if the action itself is easy and convenient then you'll be uh, more likely to do it in many cases our behaviors are just a result of what the most convenient option is to us at the time and then finally if your habits are rewarding if they have some kind of satisfaction or enjoyment if they feel satisfying then you have a reason to repeat them again in the future and so Uh, The fourth law, make it satisfying, is really about getting you to come back to a habit again and again. So that's for building a good habit. Make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. If you want to break a bad habit, you just invert those four laws. So rather than making it the cues obvious, you want to make it invisible. Rather than making it attractive, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And um, I go over a, a long list of ways to do that for good and bad habits. But the idea here is that By following the four laws of behavior change, you reduce the friction associated with performing a good habit and make it easier and more effortless and natural to do. And by inverting the four laws, you increase the friction and uh, make it more difficult and unlikely that you'll fall into a bad habit.
2: I imagine you took all of this from your years of writing. Do you find that this book was kind of a culmination of all of the articles into a much more cogent, Concise and then formulaic approach? Well, it's
1: certainly a culmination of the last six years of writing and research I've done. I mean, this is the best thing that I've ever produced. So, in that sense, yes. Um, I thought that w- when I started, I thought, okay, I'll take, like, let's say the top 25 or 50 ideas that I've had over the last few years, and that'll form the backbone of the book. Um, and it ended up being way different than what I expected. Um, I expected it to be kind of what you described, like, let me put it all together and maybe this'll, you know, like, you know, it'll congeal some way and that'll, that'll be the book. Um, in reality, it ended up being like 90% new material. Um, and that was a surprise to me, and I had to ask for an extra year to write the book, and thankfully my publisher granted it to me. And more um, money probably, so, or no? Yeah, it was just very nice of them to do. But what ended up being the major problem, just to kind of give you the, the short story on this, is that when you write on a blog, when you write individual articles, I had like 40 ideas that were all under the same umbrella of how habits work. But on a blog, it can be kind of like a spider web, right? Like one idea can connect to two or three or four others. And so they're just kind of dots in this larger web. But in a book, you can't have a web of ideas. It has to be like a number line, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. And so what I didn't realize that I didn't understand when I started was how all those ideas could be plucked out of that web and placed into a number line, placed into a clear formula for that integrates how everything works together. So I needed that extra year of writing and research to understand how all the, these ideas work together, uh, what is one overarching framework that we can use for understanding this in a very clear and practical way, and then where does each idea fit in to those four laws uh, so that you you have like a set of strategies you can actually apply in daily life. I mean, this is one of the core things that I thought was missing when reading all the habits literature and all the other habit books that are out there is that there was no clear definitive book that showed you both what is the science of how a habit works and then what can I do about it? How can I actually implement this in an actionable way? And uh, so that was my, my hope uh, for writing Atomic Habits and I, I think I was able to achieve that and the, the reviews and response has been great so far.
2: Well, James, I gotta say, you know, as I'm told you and my listeners know, I've been teaching behavior change for almost four years with one of the top organizations in the country. And I, I completely agree that you have created something that needed to be put out there that discusses things that might have been touched on, but not in the detail, depth, and clarity that you did it. And um and and just that it it is a great value. And so I recommend it to all those listening. Again, the book is Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits. And break bad ones. Um, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, anywhere else you want to you know, send listeners? You, you put out great work. Um, where's the best place to find you?
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, if you're interested in checking out some of my articles and writing, you can just go to jamesclear.com and uh, click on articles, and they're sorted by category and topic, so you can kind of dive into whatever interests you. If you'd like to look at the book specifically, you can go to atomichabits.com, and, uh, you'll be able to find out more about it there. And there are also some additional like bonus guides and, uh, supplementary materials. So there's like a guide on how to apply the ideas to business, how to apply the ideas to parenting, um, a habit tracker and, um, uh, companion kind of like email guide series that adds some more information to specific sections. But, uh, anyway, all of that is available at atomichabits.com.
2: Awesome. And we will link to that. Well, James, I wanted to say thanks so much. Great. Sounds good. Thank all you right. again. Thanks James.
0: Hope you enjoyed that. We were so excited to have James Clear on this week. And his book, Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones, can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And if you decide to purchase on Amazon, don't forget to go through that Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at SmartPeopodcast.com/slash Amazon. James also has an awesome clear habit journal which you can find at jamesclear.com slash books. And that it'll take you over to the Baron Fig page where you can pre-order his Clear Habit journal or the book and journal combo. Don't forget, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to Smart People Podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, whatever you use to download podcasts. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or you can message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for me this week. Make sure you stay tuned. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, so we'll see you all next episode.